Off the ball. If there was an Ireland job in the future, so I don't know, I think Brendan Rogers as a future Ireland's manager, I, I could get behind Subscribe this. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. Hello, Shane Hannan here, host of the F1 pod on Off The Ball, which is available every Wednesday wherever you get your podcasts. Before we get into the episode proper, however, I did want to take a quick moment to mention our sponsors of the F1 pod, Chicago Town Pizza. And sure, when you're watching the action across the weekend, why not enjoy it with a pepperoni Chicago Town stuffed crust pizza? It's takeaway taste at home. It's the F1 pod from Off The Ball with thanks to Chicago Town Takeaway's unique fresh dough pizza. Yeah, we go to town on it. Now, without further ado, the F1 pod. The F1 pod on Off The Ball with Chicago Town Pizza. Formula One. Yeah, we go to town on it. Okay, you're very welcome back to the F1 pod and Off The Ball. It's episode four. We're flying through them weekly between now and the end of the season. Uh, Live, as always, on Wednesdays in the F1 pod podcast feed and indeed the Off The Ball daily podcast feed as well, wherever you get your podcasts. The F1 pod on Off The Ball brought to you by Chicago Town Pizza. Real takeout taste for less with Chicago Town. Uh, We do want to hear your questions as per usual. Keep them coming through. Uh, Comments, thoughts as well. You'll get myself on Twitter at ShaneHannon01. Delighted to welcome our guests for episode four. We're welcoming back Bernie Collins, the uh, F1 pod pundit and the former strategy engineer who was uh, most recently the head of race strategy for the Aston Martin Formula One team. And we have John Watson as well for the first time, the former Formula One driver and five-time Grand Prix winner. Bernie and John, how are things? Bernie, go ahead and tell them. Yeah, nice to be here. Nice to be speaking with you both again. You're in a different different enough, different backdrop at the sunny Silverstone today, Bernie. Yeah, exactly. It's nice to be at Silverstone back at a track when it's actually sunny outside rather than the rain. So it's a welcome, a welcome change. Something different. And John, you have a you have a nice backdrop yourself. You have a couple of um, nostalgic photographs. Talk us through what's behind you there. Well, this is my kitchen, as basic as it is, but just over my right shoulder, there's a couple of photographs, which are memories of one of those five Grand Prix victories. This was the last one in Long Beach, 1983, when two McLarens, Nicky Lauda and myself, started at the tail of the field, then made progress, went through the field, and about halfway over, just over halfway, I saw an opportunity to pass my illustrious little teammate. So I stuck it down the inside into the, at the end of the back straight. And he said, oh, why'd you do that? Why'd you do that? I said, sorry, sunshine. It's a race. That's what it says in the tin. Motor racing, not just follow my teammate. Uh, anyway, I went on, won the race. And I think the biggest surprise was not us winning the race, was the shock in the face of everybody in McLaren. Ron Dennis, John Barnard, John Hogan. You'd think somebody had pulled... So sucked the blood like a vampire, bitten them and sucked the blood out of them. They didn't know what to say because we'd won from twenty first and twenty second positions on the grid. Is that the is that the sweetest of the of the Grand Prix wins, John, or is, is the first one always the sweetest? When you've only won five, they're all sweet. I tell <laughs> you, shit. <laughs> yeah, you're not pick and choose. That's that's the funny one as well, Bernie. You'd have had to deal with what what John's talking about there. The um, I guess that the aggro and the tension between the two drivers sometimes, some I mean, sometimes it's smooth and harmonious, but every so often you get the, I guess, second favoured driver winning the race. Yeah, I think, you know, in the central position, you need to be as sort of as fair as you can be, but you always know that there's one driver that maybe has a slightly better chance of winning that race over the other, but ultimately, whatever driver's ahead, you need to give priority to. And, you know, John's putting himself down there. He's won a lot more Grand Prix and raced a lot more Grand Prix than either of us two have. So mm-hmm. I think, those five ones have got to be really special. And, you know, I think to my own career and you look at the podiums and 
I can't pick out a podium that was sort of more special than the other. You sort of remember them all because they've been so few and far between, really. Yeah, for sure. I, I think that they're all they're all sweet. And like John, is that is that a, a thing that that you get used to, kind of dealing with with the the driver kind of behavior of your teammate and and the sometimes conversations and stern conversations that happen after races happens more often maybe than people realize. Well, I think back in the days of McLaren when Nicky joined in 1982, he came in with the I think the thought that I'm going to take over the team. It'll be my team. I will be the driver, the number one driver, or whatever. What he hadn't fully appreciated was that Ron Dennis, who ran the team, and John Barnard, the technical director, all they wanted was for McLaren to win. They didn't really mind if it was me or Nicky. I mean, the story about Nicky making the comeback in 1982 was a big story. And had he gone on and won the championship that year, then that would have been an amazing story. But the way the team ran, it was more about McLaren, the team, than the individuals, Watson or Lauder, so we were allowed to race one another on the track. And um, in 83, the same thing continued. But I think part of the reason I was successful in Long Beach was because I had a lot of time with the trainer that had been brought in along with Nicky, a man called Vinnie Dungle. And I had about a week, 10 days with him while Nicky was off doing a tour with the sponsors in South America. And God only knows what he was getting up to. So anyway, I had 10 days, five days with Vinnie Dungle. And it put me in a very good state, physical state, mental state. And I felt strong in the race. And that was why I was able to overtake successfully and then win the race. It's mad, like the the development of, it's one of those sports, when you compare it to other sports, you just can't because the development of cars has just changed things so dramatically over the over the decades. Like Bernie, when you're, when you're starting off as, as, a, as a, you know, strategy engineer and that, uh, you know, kind of develops into your career that you had with McLaren and Aston Martin, are you guys studying the the, the cars of, of decades gone and, and trying to, I guess, notice the little differences that crop up year to year? Or it's, is it a case that it's just so different that you can't even look that far back? It's quite interesting in that I'd say, you know, I joined F1 and joined McLaren because I really was interested in the mechanical engineering side. I really wanted to be, it's the pinnacle of engineering. Even if you think of it that way, you're doing it at, you know, at that stage with the most money, the most innovative design. And I was really taking it from an engineering side and not necessarily an F1 side. So actually my understanding, fundamental understanding of F1 history is really bad. I can't tell you what happened in the races <laughs> years ago. Um, so, and, and definitely when I was doing my degree, I wasn't even really watching the F1 at that stage because you were so focused on what you were doing. So, so my knowledge in that sense of, you know, the evolution of F1 has maybe become post those roles and posts getting into F1 because my driving force for being there wasn't, you get lots of people that want to work on F1, always know they want to work on F1. It's a real passion for them. And that wasn't the case for me. For me, it was really, I wanted to do the best I can with my engineering degree. So it was, it was, it was the other way around. And, you know, I sort of probably need to go back and do a bit more studying of the history of it now that I've got a bit more time on my hands, probably. Yeah, plenty of time for books and films. I mean, well, I'd say plenty of time. You'll probably find out that you've less time maybe than you, than you even had in a funny sense. Um, like, John, as your viewership of, of the sport developed and changed over the years, we were, we were having a brief chat before we started there today and you were talking, you're similar to myself, that you, you like to watch sport regardless of whether it's the cricket or the ashes this week or, or Formula One. You'd, you'd prefer to watch it live as opposed to, to highlights back. And I think a lot of people will, will uh, echo those sentiments, I think. Very much so. I mean, uh, to me, sitting down to watch a Grand Prix uh, live is a must-do, assuming you're not, I get clashing events with other things that I do. I'll, I'll finish my event, I'll look and see who's won the race, I'll pick up stuff on the internet. But once I've known what has fallen 
through the race, how people have performed, who's done what. When I return home and I sit down, I think, well, do I want to sit down and watch an hour and a half or two hours highlight package? Probably I don't, because to me, the essence of sport is seeing it live. I mean, we talked about cricket yesterday, the test match, the Ashes. What a fantastic game that was. And nobody knew which side was going to win. And it was nip and tuck all the way through until, what, the last maybe four, six overs. So motor racing and Formula One in particular, to me, is a much watched live event. And I want to sit there on the edge of my seat waiting for the lights to go out and see who gets into turn one first or see which idiot tries to pass everybody into turn one. And then, you know, the stories that go on. I mean, motor racing has always been littered with turn one incidents. How many cars in a Grand Prix come in at the end of lap one, damaged nose, bodywork, maybe have suspension damage? But that's what part of the, the live experience is, to sit there. And then it, what I am really is a, an armchair quarterback these days, which gives me a lot of latitude and a lot of freedom to say what I feel. Some of which people don't like, but that's tough. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But it, it's a good way to be as well. You know, you can enjoy it in, in, in a different sense, I suppose. That uh, that turn one thing, John, as well, like have you, I, I, that, that's one thing, I suppose, in racing that's that's never going to change. You're always going to have young drivers, especially coming in and, and being brazen and wanting to kind of make the, the bold moves, especially into turn one. That it's probably something from your viewership now that you're like, well, that hasn't that hasn't changed or developed. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's always been an element of that, but I think largely over the last maybe twenty or so, maybe thirty years, with the evolution of motorsport in the junior formulas, particularly now race tracks where you've got a different style of race track. The the runoff is much much bigger. In fact, it's it's very hard to hit anything these days unless you get well and truly off course. So going back to the good old days when I started, track limits were very clearly defined. And if you exceeded the track limits, it usually involved going off in a big way, maybe having a big accident. And the difference, I feel, is that over the years with track evolution and maybe some illustrations Formula One has you know, given young drivers, well, if a Grand Prix driver can get away with it, I can get away with it. So I feel that habits are developing, I mean, even as early as karting, developing in a very early phase of a competitor's career. And they carry that forward. So if there's room on the outside, they're going to use it. I mean, it's very easy to stop all this. You could There is electricity. don't like electricity very much. But it is a part, you know, on a, on a race car, you can put sensors on a race car, sensors in a racetrack. And if a driver exceeds a track limit, there'll be a little ping or something that will go off on the race director's office. He hands that down to the stewards and the penalty will be handed out. As far as I'm concerned, the sooner the respect for track limits returns. And, uh, you know, I go back to my days, you had to respect track limits because if you didn't, you could end up getting hurt. I would like to see a much, much firmer hand being placed on drivers across all forms of motorsport, not just Formula One, wherein track limits are there to be obeyed. And I want to see good drivers being the ones that win because they're doing the best job, not some little hot rod who can maybe run wide and think you can get away with it. It's um, it's an old-fashioned view, but well, I'm old-fashioned. <laughs> no, here, here. I think it, and it, there's those technologies, I guess, over the next 10, 15, 20 years, it's going to be fascinating to see how they how they develop, even though over the next couple of years, you know, that the, the thing moves on so fast. Um, no, it's a fair point. We should get into the, the Formula 1 proper then. I guess we had the the um, Canadian Grand Prix last weekend and uh, the standings, well, they, they don't look much different, but if anything, they look even better for, for Max Verstappen. So we have Verstappen now in 195 points in the battle for the Drivers' Championship after his uh, six wins and eight podiums. Uh, the only other two wins, of course, coming courtesy of his Red Bull teammate, Sergio Perez, who is 69 points behind him on 126 points. 
Uh, Fernando Alonso still in third on 117. Uh, so just the, what, nine points adrift of uh, Perez. Hamilton in fourth and 102. And Carlos Sainz for Ferrari uh, running out the top five in terms of drivers. And of course, when it comes to the Constructors' Championship, Red Bull way out in front, 321 points now to Mercedes. It was 167 with Aston Martin on 154. Um, as we know, the two-week break as we build up to the to the Austrian Grand Prix. And then, of course, the, the British Grand Prix at Silverstone there where, where Bernie is today, uh, the week after that. So... Um, Bernie, I guess that the Canadian Grand Prix, I mean, from a results perspective, from a, from a Max Verstappen perspective, uh, and I know we've been having this conversation again and again, week after week, but uh, I mean, it's just going his way this year, isn't it? Yeah, and I think, you know, there was a lot of discussion through the Grand Prix or post-Grand Prix about how close the field were to Verstappen at the end. And well, let's wait and see what happens there. If it's genuinely that, you know, the field are closing and that Verstappen didn't have the legs on it or if it's just he was managing his pace because he could and that, you know, the, the sort of longer stints. A few really interesting talking points for that Grand Prix. You know, I was one of the ones at home, you know, as John said, watching it live, sort of seeing what's going to happen. But, you know, the, the Ferrari staying out at the first safety car, I thought, oh, you know, that's a really interesting strategy call. What are they going to do with that? And then the other thing you talk about the constructors, the standings is, you know, the album single stint to the end, really shifted Williams' position in constructors. Okay, it was only one position in terms of, you know, the P1 to P10, but much, much closer to those cars directly ahead. So that that battle there is, is really interesting, I think, towards the back as well. There were some big calls in Canada that I think have shaken things up a little bit. That's that's one of the, the fascinating ones, Bernie, isn't it? The Williams, like, we, and we probably haven't got the opportunity to talk about some of the teams towards the back of the grid and, and, and even the midfield in recent episodes. But, I mean... Those little point changes, and as you say, it's only a small difference at the end, but what Alvin did, I mean, it can make a huge difference for a team. And we probably don't even think about that in a financial sense, but it really does make a difference. Yeah, so for him, you know, it's six points. That's massive for a team that going into the weekend was last in the Constructors' Championship. You can't score six points that easily. And for them, they've ended up, you know, now they've went from P10 and the Constructors to P9. So on paper, a small, a small step. But they're now only one point behind Haas. That's quite, you know, easier to come by than the six they scored yesterday. So I think the Canadian Grand Prix would be a big, you know, it's a big mark, a big jump in their in their weekend for them. So, you know, I think they're only one point behind Haas and they're two points behind the car ahead of that. So it's really closed up that sort of back of the midfield battle. And those single points are going to come crucial. So I think that step for them can't be undermined. And when you look at the race weekend, I'm not sure how much we want to talk about that and stuff, but you look at the race weekend, it's proper teamwork, you know. The car was set up to be good in a straight line, so he was fit to defend. Albon did a good job of defending. The strategy went for the one stop. He manages the pace throughout. So there's a lot of good elements there coming together that, that got that. So that is proper teamwork for Williams to take a car that realistically shouldn't be finishing in that position. They beat, they beat the two McLarens, you know. It's very strong race from them, I think, last weekend. It's true, John, isn't it? I mean, to 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 get the seventh place, um, and, and you know that that strong qualifying performance from Alex Albon as well to to start ninth, uh, and, and what he does then in the race, is, as Bernie says, is quite magnificent. He, he takes his his set of hard tires, fifty seven laps, and you think of the the traction demands in Canada as well. I mean, from a driver's perspective, hard tires, fifty seven laps on that track. Um, I mean, how do you put that into context for us? Because it's it's not easy. No, I'm just going to come back, if I may, just before I answer that question, just to ask Bernie. Assuming, Bernie, that the pace that Max had was the pace that he had, he wasn't holding anything back. 
Had you been on the Aston Martin strategy pit wall, would you have done anything different than Aston Martin did do that might have been enabling for Fernando to run down Max Verstappen, make his life a lot more difficult, even overtake him? I think the question mark, I think having gone through the race in terms of staying to the two-stop, I'm not sure there's a lot they could have done differently. Obviously, there's a lot of talk about the managing the brakes or whatever issue they're managing throughout the race. You can't do a lot about that as a strategist. That is what it is. I think the thing that they'll be looking at now differently is when you look at Albon's stint, if they'd been able to stay out on a one-stop, you know, everyone stopped at the safety car, that's fine. But if they've been able to stay out, the other thing that's interesting from you know, both Aston Martin and Mercedes side for Hamilton is when you see what Ferrari did and they didn't stop at that first safety car, they took the track position and then they did a very balanced one stop, which is actually better than what Albon did. What Ferrari did is better than what Albon did. They had a medium hard one stop race. They will be lucky now this week if that could have beaten Verstappen just because they would have forced Verstappen into doing the overtaking. And that is going to be very interesting because that's perfect hindsight. Maybe there was something in their tyre model previous that didn't tell them that was possible. So they're going to be thinking, what had Ferrari reacted to? And what we need to be clear is there was, there was only 11 laps before you had to make that pit stop decision. So in that race, you've not really got a read and degradation. You're not really sure where the pace is. There was also a VSC in there. So you've not really learned a lot in that race to make that decision. So it's stuff that they learned pre-event, obviously, that disrupted Friday. So people will be looking at what model they had going into the race and what they could have had different on their street in front of them. It's a fascinating one. And like all these decisions, you forget that there are so many hours of meetings that, that go into these decisions. Like, And from a driver's perspective, John, it's it's so important because it, it completely affects your race. As I say, Albon has to take those 57 laps on, on hard tyres, which is not easy on that kind of track. I mean, obviously, depending where you start in the grid, I mean, you, you make your commitment basically going into qualifying and then what you have is going to be what you're going to race on. I mean, I don't have a problem with starting on a hard tyre if you're starting in the second half of the grid because you've got to take a different view because you know that those ahead of you are going to be starting on the softer options and they will be making their pit stops. It's, it's a gamble whichever way you look at it. And that's why people like Bernie and others are employed and paid to do that job. They're there to work out the, the various compilations that will work. Now, Canada is a circuit where it's, it's, it's got a, effectively, I find anyway, a relatively low grip, but it's, it's a big circuit and brakes. There's a lot of high-speed braking. So that is a, an issue you have to consider. So big, big, big brakes and then big, big traction exits from a lot of those slow corners. So the hard tire, it's a roll of dice thing. The, the key for me about hard tyre usage is essentially about what the ambient and track temperatures are going to be. I've had experience of doing this, and I started one race with hards on the left, and these were concrete and clay tyres on the left, and regular tyres on the right. We were allowed to do that back in the 80s. And by getting that left side hard tyre up to operating temperature, car was fantastic, remained stable all the way through the race. You wouldn't have known it was two different compounds, and the car just enabled me to pass and pass and pass and eventually take a victory. It's much more complex now, obviously, because you're running hard compound all round or a soft compound all round or the mediums all round. So when you are the driver, you get in, you've got to work with your team and work out where you can do what you can do. And maybe it's not going to happen in the first third or first quarter of the race. It might come later, but it's about that strategy and the planning that goes into what you're expecting at the end when the flag comes out. It, it's, uh, I, I was just going to butt in there a second, Shane. It's just, 
I've never met a driver, and it's funny that John said the same, that starts in the back off of the field that doesn't want to do something different. They always want a different strategy to the people further ahead, so they're prepared to start on the hard. And I actually think it sounds more complicated when you think of back back in those days, John, where you've got different compounds across the car. At least we know for certain when you've got, there's no sort of confusion of which side they've put them on or it sounds in ways like the way it is now is simpler yes you've got more to contend with in terms of balancing it but you've definitely not confusion of is the hard on the left or the right hand side and are we sure we've got that the right way around well i mean, I mean going back to this is back in the early 80s everything was much more simple albeit we had a proper qualifying tire then with the basic race tire choice of two compounds in this particular race there was a set of tires that were used the previous season in las vegas where you're going to be going on it Formula One's going to be going later this year. Las Vegas is hot. It is hot desert heat, but it's very dry heat. And those tyres were used by some of our competitors when I was using the regular compound, and that tyre came alive. My team boss dragged that tyre out on the Sunday morning when we had warm-ups. Why do we not have a Sunday morning warm-up? I love it. It's great. I want to see cars on track on Sunday morning, give the guys a chance, give the teams a chance to see what's the, the transition from the track from Saturday to Sunday is going to be all about, oh, you can't do it, cost cap and all that rubbish. Well, cost cap's been driven a horse and coaching horses through it from what I can see. <laughs> anyway, putting the hard compound on the left, the car came alive. It was at Zolder in Belgium and just the car was fantastic. And my little teammate, Lauda, I said to him, by the way, after we'd done the warm-up, he said, okay, what do you do? What do you do? What, what tires you run? So I said, I did this and this and this. And I said, Nicky, if I was you, I would do that as well, because I know your left front's going to give up. Mm, mm, mm. So he thought about it for five minutes and another five minutes. And then he thought about it again for another five minutes. I said, why are you not going to do it? And he went, mm, 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 mm. And I finally dragged it out of him, you know, screaming. And, you know, he said, because I haven't tried it. <laughs> now, how many of your drivers... How many drivers that you've worked with, if you said, let's roll the dice and do something you know, out of the box, would they do it? Or they say, oh, well, I haven't tried it. My mummy wouldn't let me. <laughs> <laughs> it's a different driver attitude, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> Come on, Bernie, give us your best shot. Go on. <laughs> it's a lot, well, from a strategy point of view, especially when you're in a position outside the points, pretty much everyone, I spend my life trying to convince them not to do something out of the box. <laughs> yeah quite the opposite yeah 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 it's amazing <laughs> would you be would you be a fan of that bernie the as john says the sunday sunday morning taking the taking the cars out? i'm sure the fans would, would would love an extra opportunity to see the cars on track there's pros and cons isn't there because at the moment i feel that because of where we are strategically from race point of view if we've had like we had in canada sort of overnight rain or a wet qualifying actually in Canada it was between Friday and Sunday so big track evolution across the time and I think you know the difference in, in my own opinion is probably the difference in every engineer and, and um, driver really but the engineers would love to see to have it on paper know what the answer is but I think as a spectator as a viewer then it's nice to have the unknown you get that diversion on strategy you get some people starting on, you know, last weekend, someone started on soft, medium and hard tires. So you get that real mix because people just don't know the answer and just don't know how it's going to um, evolve. The, the slight difference with that as well as, you know, in, in other series where you've warm up sort of three or four hours before the race, the track temperature tends to, at least in F1, change quite a lot between 
what would be the warm-up time and the track time. So although you've got another marker in the sand, you've still got a little bit of guesswork to do in between. So there's a lot going on. So I'm not, I'm not against it. And I think, you know, standing in the grandstands, I'd love to see the cars go by another time and it would give people a reason to be there early. But I like the unknowing of going into a race and having, now that I don't have to do it myself, I can just watch it on TV. I I like the unknowing of being fit to see what are they going to do? How are they going to approach this? People are going to have to think on their feet here. And that's where we get what we got last weekend with the Ferraris v everyone else. Yeah, 100%. No, it's definitely an interesting idea anyway to float for sure. Uh, We might take a a very short ad break here, guys, but we'll be back very shortly to pick up on uh, more of the bits and bobs from the the, uh, Canadian Grand Prix and, of course, a short look ahead as well to Austria in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, That was Bernie Collins, the F1 pundit, former strategy engineer as well, most recently the head of race strategy for the Aston Martin Formula 1 team. And we have John Watson as well, the former Formula 1 driver and five-time Grand Prix winner. We'll be back on the F1 pod here on Off The Ball in just a sec. The F1 pod on Off The Ball with Chicago Town Pizza. Formula One, yeah, we go to town on it. Okay, you're very welcome back to episode four here of the F1 pod on Off The Ball Weekly between now and the end of the season, every single Wednesday with myself, Shane Hannon, and we have our guests uh, on this episode this week. Bernie Collins, the former race engineer and uh, head of race strategy for the Aston Martin Formula One team, now a Formula One pundit as well, and John Watson, the former Formula One driver and five-time Grand Prix winner. Um, John, we should we should kind of give Max Verstappen his little bit of credit as well. I know the the victory in Canada was uh, was a fairly important one for him and, and for Red Bull as well. It, it was Red Bull's uh, 100th uh, Formula One race victory, which is a, a milestone moment for them, but also for Max, uh, 41st win to match Ayrton Senna's tally, puts him equal fifth on the all-time leaderboard for wins as well. Um, I, mean, I, mean, I guess from a driver's perspective, you're always looking at those records and trying to chase them down, right? Um, I think, first of all, congratulations to what Max, what Max Verstappen has done, in particular since the end of 21. I think there's been a, a transition in his approach to Formula One and arguably that he's now he's not around Lewis on the racetrack to the degree he had been over the previous seasons. He seems to have matured and I'm delighted to see it because now we can see what the guy is capable of without having to sort of put himself on the line or make moves. I think all the time back to Silverstone 21 into Cops, you know, there's a move that he should never have attempted because he had more than enough car to get around Lewis further in the lap, but that was max at up to 21. So there's a pre-22 max and there's a post-22 max. And right now he's driving in a sublime fashion and the car works for him, the team, it's his team. Uh, and it's just, he's got that purple patch of his career, which he can continue as long as he chooses to do. And certainly he'll continue to win. He could arguably go on and win most of the remaining Grand Prix, other than unforeseen issues, reliability or weather or something beyond his control. He's in that wonderful part of his career now, and he'll win a lot more Grand Prix. And whether he'll go on and reach Max's, sorry, reach Lewis's or Michael Schumacher's totals, that's a different matter. I don't know how long he'll want to do it. He's already expressed an interest in wanting to go to Le Mans. Mm. Has anybody told Max Verstappen that Le Mans is actually 22 hours too long it's a 24-hour race, not a two-hour Grand Prix. <laughs> yeah, maybe he hasn't uh, thought that through. I think once he's sitting in the car for, for any longer than 10 or 12 hours, maybe his opinion might change, John, for sure. But it, it's one it's one of those things, Bernie, isn't it? Like the, as, as as John described it there, a purple patch. Like I was reading a, a mad one. He's obviously won the last four races, but he's led every single lap since he took the lead on, on the uh, lap 48 of the Miami Grand Prix, which is back at the start of May, 40, uh, you know, 40-odd days ago, more than 40 days ago. So... 
and then when you look at the races upcoming, Austria next, it's hard to see his run ending anytime soon. Yeah, I think John's right. He's matured so much. And, you know, there was an incident with recent point, I think it was the time years ago in Brazil, I think it was, where Esteban Ockham was unlapping himself and he actually collided with Max, who was winning the race. There was no need for him to fight a back marker coming through. It was really stupid. And now we're seeing this Max who lap one has the car to take it a little bit easier, thinking things through. He's becoming a much better all-round racer. He's getting the qualifying pieces always been there. And now we're perfecting that racing element of it, that calculated risk, that points in the championship, teamwork aspect of it. So he does have the ability. And, you know, a lot of people, you know, pre-21, maybe pre-even 2020, weren't thinking that Max could ever make a world championship just because of some of the mistakes that were being made. And he has really turned that around and he has become a much more all-round driver. So it's really positive to see. Um, and it's going to be interesting you think of the targets that you hit or the number of races he can win. And we've got this regulation change coming in 2026. It's going to be interesting to see what happens then in terms of can he develop himself to this point where when the race becomes really close or when Mercedes get back and he is back fighting Lewis again, it's going to be that one-to-one fights with Lewis. Are we going to see that different side of Max retain through that? So has the lessons that are being learned now, are they going to carry forward in a, in a good enough way? Is it perhaps premature, Bernie, for us to, to kind of start talking about the gap between Red Bull and the rest narrowing? Because, I mean, we, we spoke about the, the upgrades for Mercedes and for Ferrari and Aston Martin in recent uh, weeks and months. But uh, as you say, like that gap between um, Verstappen and Fernando Alonso at the end in Canada is only, and I say only, nine and a half seconds. You know, it's it's not exactly the 30 odd seconds he had in Spain in the previous race. Um, so, like, in some ways, the gap is, is, is narrowing, but it's hard to see that continuing long term, is it? I think the gap is narrow and I think it will continue to. So, you know, in F1, we talk about a lot about marginal gains. So if you have the slowest car in the field, the gains that you can make through a floor, a front wing, aerodynamics are much greater than the car that is the fastest on the grid. So Red Bull, the gains that they can make now with a car that looks pretty planted, very solid, really good car, are going to be smaller than the teams further back, just naturally through physics. So I think... Think we're going to continue to see that that gap close and close you know the mercedes team have been proven to be very very strong in the past multiple world championship winners they will be trying to push very hard there's the wind tunnel time you know the, the regulation changes with that the red ball penalty i think everything is driving towards that gap closing and the longer it goes on towards the end of this year in the next year with continuous regulations that will close i think naturally it will I think we can't get too excited about the nine seconds that we've seen versus the 30 we'd seen before. I don't think that's the rate of closure. I don't think that this week or, you know, in Austria, they're going to be dead tight. But that is the direction we're going. So we do need to be, I'm pretty optimistic that the other teams will get there. Yeah, you'd, li- you'd like to think so, John, wouldn't you? Because, um, and, and although the gap is, as we say, is nine and a half seconds back to Alonso, I suppose we have to remember that, that Alonso and Hamilton were, essentially racing each other so they, they didn't have a second to to relax and, and take a, a, a quote-unquote easy lap um, and I think you know one of the engineers was kind of suggesting as much over the radio as well Alonso even spoke afterwards saying he you know he, he was pushing all the race Um what have, what have you made of, of Fernando Alonso so far uh, this season John because he's just reading in the ears I suppose and it's fantastic to see him just you know picking up podium after podium 
Well, I've been a Fernando fan all the way through his days at Benetton and uh, regrettably never won a championship when he went to Ferrari. And what he's been doing this year at Aston Martin, I had not anticipated. I mean, he is, whether it's he himself or the, the, the combined elements of the work, the development, aerodynamics, whatever, Aston Martin is a, is a transformed team. And it's come at the right time for Fernando Alonso because he's been driving, I mean, to me, absolutely. But I mean, 41 years old in a formula which is now dominated by you know guys, you know, a lot of them in their early 20s, some of them slightly older. But Fernando has still got all that enthusiasm, but he's got all the motivation. He is so highly motivated right now. Um, while I think that the remaining part of the season will be dominated by Red Bull, it'll be a matter of horses for courses. And there may be weather issues come in. There may be other factors that will come in where you get the unpredictability, which really sometimes Formula One lacks. But I would love to see Fernando Alonso and Aston Martin stand on the winner's podium at least once this year. And I don't think Max Verstappen would be upset about it. I think he would be he would be delighted to see his adversary uh, do something as remarkable as win another Grand Prix in a team that's really still a youngish team. Yeah, I think that everyone agrees there. Do you know whether it's the, the F1 top brass or the the fans from a competitive point of view? I think we'd all love to see some competition and, and some some different race winners, I guess. Even as you say, Max would probably appreciate a little bit of competition the odd week. Um, Bernie, as well, it, it, like it's it, it's interesting to see that because Aston Martin, I know, were talking about their their upgrade packages, and they were saying that it'll put themselves, you know, in the frame in some races and in some tracks and in some conditions. Um, and clearly, one of those conditions was was in Montreal because even when the test came with Lewis Hamilton uh, coming up behind him, he, he was he was well capable and and well in that race. Yeah, I think, you know, part of that is Alonso. Alonso knows the game. He knows the gaps when he's got Lewis behind. He knows the strategy. He's one of these drivers. I know it's incredible the overhead these guys have to think about what's going on. The number of times the drivers come in and said, he's seen something going past on the TV. And you sort of think, how does he have time to watch TV? But Alonso's one of these guys that knows everything that's going on. He knows every play that everyone's made. And he will know that he needs to protect from Hamilton at the end. As much as he's saying on the radio, I want to go get Verstappen, he knows the game. He knows what's been played out. He knows how to get there. And I think, you know, that team has really come together. We've, you know, we've, you know, historically from my background, I know that Aston Martin have a really strong team. The trackside team have always performed very well in terms of the strategy decisions they make, in terms of the reaction to events. They've always been, you know, posted at this team that, um, gets results above their above their weight or above their standing. So Alonso's come in a new car that's fast. It's really gelled. You can see a team that's gelling and working well together. You can hear that in their team radio. The two drivers are working well, and they're really going to bring that team and development forward. And it is easier when you've got a strong car to then start to bring upgrades that work as well because you know what's working on the car already. So I do see that team going forward and it would be lovely to see them win a race this year with either driver. But to have gone from the people, you know, there's people that worked in that factory for the last 20 years or more. And I've gone from a team that struggles. Every podium you get in the year is so hard fought to now be having podiums almost every weekend. It must be a fantastic feeling. And it does bring this, you know, unity in the team that hopefully they can continue to drive on for, for years going forward really for sure and and it was one of those things that we, i think we mentioned mercedes earlier as well bernie and and, and like the uh, i guess the joy from a mercedes perspective is teams and you'll know this better than anyone teams sit down at the start of a year and they kind of pinpoint the tracks where they can 
can really do damage. And then I guess some tracks where they think, well, that that would be a bonus result uh, at that track, given given the car's strengths and weaknesses. But for Mercedes, I mean, Canada, they probably had it down as one of their worst circuits, given the the, the weakness and slow speed corners for, for Mercedes that we've seen in recent times. But for them, it, it feels very much like a, like a bonus podium. Yeah, definitely. I don't think going into the weekend they were necessarily expecting it. And I think a lot of it has been that, you know, Ferrari have been very variable. So you can sort of pick your position amongst the top three, the Red Bull, the Aston and the Mercedes. But Ferrari have been so variable, and particularly with the bad qualifying and then with the um, penalties that they received to, in order for them to start P11 and P12. That's a real struggle, you know. So that's, I think, where Mercedes are struggling to say. So they'll, they'll have been glad. And at one point, I thought, you know, it was going to be both drivers in the possible, on the podium. Russell and Hamilton both doing really well. So they'll be maybe a bit disappointed with the Russell at the end. Yeah, it was one of those moments that, that, that I guess it could have been a better day for them, but at least they, they got that podium in the end with, with Lewis. Um, John, there was, there was an interesting comment I, I saw from from Daniel Ricciardo after the, after the race as well. He was talking about... Um, Lewis Hamilton going up and approaching Max Verstappen after the race and questioning about him about his his Red Bull car and I think Ricardo's point was that maybe Hamilton was up to no good and trying to get in, into Max Verstappen's head but I guess given the history that that Hamilton and Verstappen have little things like that are always going to be honed in on and, and focused on more than more than any other two drivers. Well, certainly the, the images I saw of the pair of them talking they seemed to have buried all the animosity that had been around two or three years earlier. And I mean, I think that's a sign of the maturity of Max Verstappen. Uh, Lewis is a different creature altogether. I mean, he's won so many championships, waiting for his eighth championship to come along. He's been there. He knows what it's all about. He's such a rounded and, and oh, there's an aircraft flying over me here. It's making everything shake. Um, he's such a rounded competitor. I mean, as is Fernando Alonso. They, they are mature. And that's the benefit that you get with mature drivers. You know, some people say, oh, they're too long on the tooth. They've been around too long. They haven't got the motivation. But what they do have is that expertise and knowledge. And they they know, and just what Bernie said about Fernando, and he's a very, very canny and smart operator. Lewis is equally canny and smart. Mm. Yeah, he's one of those characters. And even like the experience he has, I think even the question that, that Ricardo's talking about, he was just asking Verstappen, you know, what was your car stiff? Did it bounce a lot? And I think Verstappen was like, yeah, essentially it was. But the track is also bumpy. He had an old, a question of his own entire degradation. But as you say, John, he, he's so experienced Hamilton that other drivers would be a bit silly not to kind of tap into his his brain any chance. Yes, I mean, but, yeah, but also one of the things that a driver can do is, I mean, sort of innocently or pretend innocently to go along and say, oh, my car was awful. I was doing this and that and the other. What was yours doing? And, oh, yeah, mine was great. So, I mean, information is something that should not be shared with other teams. I one time made a mistake of saying something in a press conference and the technical director went off the radar because I had said something which he felt was inappropriate and gave competitors uh, an insight into what our team was doing. So if Max wants to turn around, well, you know, I could have done a bit more rebound or a bit more whatever, whatever the adjustment he would have felt would have made the car better. You may remember, no, you don't, you're all both too young. Uh, British Grand Prix at Silverstone, Nigel Mansell won it, Senna retired. On the slowing down lap, Mansell stopped and let Senna get a ride back on the side pod of the, of the Williams. And in the process, Senna eyeballed every single instrument in the car, watched everything that Mansell was doing, even on an in-lap, to gain information, insight into what that car had that the McLaren at that time didn't. So 
anything that Lewis is doing, it might be at face value, oh, he's being friendly, he's being nice. Well, actually, what he's trying to do is gain information to benefit him and Mercedes. It's mad, isn't it? I mean, I guess, Sean, you're in a weird way, Formula One drivers are like are like poker players. You kind of have to bluff a little bit when you're being asked questions by other drivers and, and other team principals. It's it's all a big game, really, of cat and mouse, isn't it? Yeah, it is. But remember, also, you're primed with adrenaline to a level which is you know, the most amazing stimulant you can have. So every part of your body, your, every sense is heightened. So when you're asked a question, you come back normally very quickly with an answer. You don't go back and say, well... Let me just think about what happened on that 42 going into the herbal bed. Did I miss the bump or did I hit the... You, know, you come out very quickly with a response and that's just due to the adrenaline. Yeah, for sure. Just one of those things that happens race to race. Uh, we, we should mention Ferrari while, while we're here as well, Bernie, because uh, we briefly touched on them earlier. But, um, I mean, Leclerc 10th, signs 11th after penalties. Um, that was on the, on the Saturday. And, and, like, it was just... It, it, was, it, was a, it was a funny weekend for them because... I mean, I guess if you if you're team principal, if you're if you're one of the race engineers, recent weeks haven't been that great. So, how are you feeling if you're a Ferrari uh, driver or I guess employee this week? I think this week has been positives and negatives, isn't it? So, if we look at the Canada race, the qualifying, anyone can get qualifying wrong and whack qualifying. Now they should be performing at a level where that's not happening. The penalties for me in qualifying are inexcusable. It's not the first time this year I believe that they have had a penalty for blocking on track. That is basic GPS knowledge. So I feel that that I would treat pretty harshly because you're just giving away positions on a racetrack where qualifying is always important. The strategy on Sunday needs to be, you know, commented on. It was very, very strong. They made a decision to get track position that really made up a lot for what happened in qualifying. And I think Ferrari, you know, in the press have often been very harshly treated because of issues in strategy. Now, that always comes with a team that are so much in the limelight as they are. But really good strategy call and really brave to do it with both cars from their position. Really stuck to their guns in the one stop. Got that track position. And I think lots of teams, like we said, will be looking at what they could have done differently there. But that was really fundamental to their race, that decision to stay out on that safety car and to stick to their guns and stick with the medium as long as they did. So that really, really, really positive for me and even more positive because of how harshly the Ferrari strategy has often been commented on. Um, so it's great to see that team in many ways working together, but the, the Saturday is just inexcusable. To get the penalties and qualify and to give up positions that you fought for it makes it really hard Sunday for them. Yeah, it's 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 fascinating the di- watching the difference between them on on Saturday and Sunday. And like John as as Bernie says, like they did get a lot of things right on on Sunday. Eventually, Leclerc is is ultimately in fourth, signs fifth, um, eighteen and twenty one odd seconds respectively behind Max Verstappen. Um, but but as Bernie says, John, strategy wise, they did get it right on Sunday. Um, and some positives to take. Well, I think the, the car has, I think, got inherent pace, but it seems there's inconsistencies in the team. And again, I won't refer back all the time, but when Ron Dennis came into McLaren, one of the things he said about establishing was, anybody who says, oh, that was bad luck, you get your P45. Mm-hmm. That's your marching orders out of the team. And the reason is that Ron said about trying to mitigate every area within the team where there was... a uh, a failure or a mistake, whether it was bad driving, bad management, bad design, bad whatever, 
mitigate all those errors. There's too many fundamental errors creeping into Ferrari, and I don't know why they're doing it. Ultimately, ultimately, it comes from the management of the team. But, I mean, watching what happened to Carlos Sainz, he, he found himself in a difficult situation. He tried his best, but it wasn't good enough, and he got a penalty. And you cannot afford, in Formula 1 these days, when you've got such domination at the front and you're trying to challenge it, to come from the back foot or the back two feet or how many feet you got to come forward to get to a point where you should have been naturally and then you're still going to challenge those at the front. So I think they've got to sit down and start deciding how can we stop making fundamental schoolboy errors, which is what they were, and let's use the strengths that we've got to our maximum to give us opportunities to go out and maybe win a Grand Prix this year. Yeah. For sure, I, I, you'd imagine that they'll start learning from from these results in recent weeks and performances and strategy errors. Even I guess they'll they'll pick up and learn from. Just to finish out the, the top ten, I should mention as well. We've we've kind of touched on the, the top five there. Generally speaking, Perez was of course sixth for Red Bull. A disappointing weekend for him, you'd have to say. Alex Albon, as we mentioned, in seventh. Esteban Ocon was eighth for Alpine. Lance Stroll in ninth for Aston Martin. And Valtteri Bottas uh, picking up the last of the points uh, for Alfa Romeo in tenth. Uh, before we go, guys, we should we should uh, reflect, or not reflect, but look ahead to, rather, the uh, the Austrian Grand Prix. Of course, it's a it's an off weekend, this upcoming weekend, and then we have the Austrian Grand Prix the, the weekend after. Um, Bernie, who do you fancy? <laughs> who do you fancy here? I mean, Lewis, uh, Max Verstappen has won here three times, of course, already. Charles Leclerc was the winner, of course, for Ferrari on this track uh, last year. Bottas won it himself also in, in 2020. Um, but it feels like a, a Red Bull-specific track, I guess. Yeah, well, it is literally the Red Bull ring. <laughs> but I think that it's going to be an interesting weekend. So just a few things for this weekend is uh, for Austria. It's going to be a sprint weekend again. So that will mix things up a little bit. You've got that sprint race taking place on, on Saturday. So let's see what comes out of that. Austria, you know, as a strategist and a driver, it's a very, very short lap. So there's very little time off. It's a few straight corners. It's difficult for the traffic. So let's hope Ferrari have got to the bottom of that one in terms of the block. And it's a very intense qualifying lap because it's very, very short time. Um, but I do think it's going to be another one for, for Max. Let's see if Checo can start to rein it back um, in terms of trying to get some good results. It's just been qualifying has been as let down really in the last few races. So mm. hopefully he can bring that back a little bit. But I do think that the sprint weekend a slightly different edge to it. And it is a very different track just in terms of how quickly things happen. If you miss a pit stop, um, it's it's very quick to get back around. That has positives and negatives in the, in the wet or whatever. Um, it's positive that you, you don't have much to, to recover from it. But in qualifying, it means that things happen very, very quickly. We also tend to see in Austria, um, without rabbiting on too long, but it's very, very short lap time. So generally, the gaps between cars and qualifying are very, very small just because of that lap time um, that we end up with. So it is one where very quickly you can go out in Q1 just because you've made a tiny mistake, because the field is very, very tight. So it's always an interesting one to watch. It's always a hectic one on the pit wall because things are coming at you pretty fast. Um, so, yeah, it's going to be a really interesting weekend, I think. And um, hopefully I'm going to be there with Sky as well. So it'll be interesting to see it on the ground for that one. Brilliant. Uh, it should be a fun one, especially as you say, with the sprint weekend as well. John, how, how are you expecting this one to go? I guess a lot of people, as, as uh, Bernie says, it's quite literally the Red Bull ring. Um, so Max will be will be undoubtedly the favourite. But uh, you did say you'd love to see a, a different kind of race winner, aside from Red Bull at some stage. Maybe this race might come too soon. But can you see it happening in, in upcoming weeks? At face value, no. But because it is a sprint weekend, that throws up 
another unknown. So it gives opportunities, A, for incidents to occur, uh, but at face value, again, it should be Red Bull written over it, just as it would say in the racetrack when you go and get your ticket, Red Bull ring, and it's going to be a Red Bull race. The other element that does happen in Austria, and it's been happening quite, dra- quite quickly and dramatically, is a weather change. Remember, Austria is just over 1,000, 1,500 feet above sea level. You've got mountains and forests all around it. So that acts like a giant magnet to any clouds that are around, and you can have a very quick rain is another factor that can produce unpredictability. If you make a misjudgment in terms of, say, let's in the race, you either decide to go on to a set of wets too early or go on to them too late or return back to slicks too early. There's so many elements then that come into the decision process, which is what Bernie's there to do. She's the one that's going to tell the team, if you come in now and go on to slicks, your pace will take a couple of laps to get up to pace, but it's but where you come back in, will you come back in in a, in, in a gap wherein you can afford to be off the pace for a couple of laps to consolidate, then use that strength. So I think it's a race for strategists. It'll be a fascinating race, compounded by having a sprint race as well. Yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to that one as per usual. Uh, Guys, really love the insight, uh, as always. Thanks a million for hopping on. John Watson, Bernie Collins, brilliant stuff. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Good stuff, guys. That's episode four of the F1 pod and off the ball in the books. And we'll, of course, uh, check in uh, either before or thereafter of the Austrian Grand Prix uh, with all the results and analysis and reactions. So uh, thanks for joining us. And, uh, of course, keep your questions coming uh, to myself on Twitter at ShaneHannon01. And we'll see you in the next one. Good luck. The F1 pod on off the ball with Chicago Town Pizza. Formula One. Yeah, we go to town on it.